Hello and welcome to the Last of the Moon podcast. I'm Bryce McCracken. I'm Brett Redshaw. And today we will be talking about the film Interstellar without Wyatt. Uh, uh, you forgot about me, guys. I'm Wyatt. Uh, I'm a little boy. Oh, sorry, Wyatt. I thought you were in Florida, but here you are sitting next to me. Actually, uh, our third guest is Neil deGrasse Tyson on the podcast. Wow, he's here? He's here. Uh, how does Neil deGrasse Tyson talk? Oh, uh, hello. Hi, fellas. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on the podcast. It's actually uh, my, my favorite podcast about movies. You guys are uh, really smart. You can tell we'll, we're going to have a, a really good conversation about space and time. And Brett, you particularly, you look really hot tonight. Uh, you're a very smart guy. Uh, I could tell from listening to the podcast. Very smart. It sounds more like an Obama impression. <laughs> uh, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we need to listen to the Last of the Moon podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Obama was president when this movie came out, was he not? Whoa. 2014? 2014? Uh-huh. Yeah, that would be correct. Yeah. So uh, he probably saw this, right? He yeah. wasn't that busy. Uh, and, well, he was busy... <laughs> He was busy uh, <laughs> doing drone strike. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh, uh, crashing the economy. Um, yeah, so unfortunately, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson aside, Wyatt is out for spring break because he is still a little boy in college. Uh, so he still gets a spring break. So he is in Florida watching baseball. One day we're going to have to tell the people what really happened. What really about, happened? About, about, about Wyatt. Are we not... Not ready to tell them yet? Well, I, I'll tell them. Okay. I Well, you said one day, so I, that would imply not today. Well, yeah. I mean, if we're going to really, we're going to step up to the plate right now and tell you that, yeah, he died. He he got eaten by ants. One day he fell over and they just swarmed him. Couldn't get him off. They and said, we heard what you said about quantum mania. Uh, Ant-Man is our favorite hero. And uh, sorry, kid. It's over. The ant community was was very upset. Wyatt spends a lot of time making sure that he is respecting all communities, but he left out maybe the most important community of all, and that's ants. Mm -hmm. Marginalized Um, people groups. So yeah, Wyatt Wyatt is no longer with us. He will be missed. But uh, yeah, we're going to do this episode without him. I texted him and said... Because we were, we were trying to figure out what our next episode was going to be. There wasn't a whole lot in theaters that we were really excited about. Cocaine bears out, but I uh, wasn't feeling super passionate about <laughs> recording an episode talking about it. I'd rather just go maybe inebriated and have a good time at that movie rather than talking critically about it. Funny enough, though, what ends up on our docket of movies that we're going to watch are usually movies that a lot of people are going to be in the theaters to see. I don't know how many people are going to buy tickets to Cocaine Bear. But what else are they going to go see? There's nothing really happening right now in the theaters. So, I mean, it, like, it would be like, a, you know, it's early, early 2023, uh, similar to January not having uh, amazing spectacle movies. Like February still is going to be kind of a drag as well. But are we going to have another Megan situation where a million people go out, multiples of millions of people go out and see Cocaine Bear? I'm sure Cocaine Bear will make money. I cannot imagine that movie was made with a very large budget and they're paying a lot for marketing let's let's take a second let's let's detour before we get into this movie and see what's coming out this month i would assume they paid a decent amount of uh money to make cocaine bear i mean how they how they get all the money to uh, give that bear all that cocaine yeah i guess cocaine is expensive i didn't think about the street price for that drug oh february 2023 movie releases although february is over is it not? 
Are you talking about right right this second? Is yeah. Incorrect. Today is February 26th, no? It is. That's the last day of February. Wrong. February 28th? <laughs> yeah, that would be the I've forgotten last day how February. February works. Oh my god. If you take this out <laughs> of the final edit, uh, I'm going to lose No, my I'm going to I'll leave it in there. <laughs> yeah. Uh it's not that egregious of a thing to mess up, <laughs> but something about it. It's like uh Bryce not having a job for as long as he has has made him forget what day, month, and year we're in. Yeah, it could be Wednesday. It could be Tuesday. It could be 2027. Who knows? But yeah, there's not really a whole lot that happened in February other than Cocaine Bear and Ant-Man and uh, 80 for Brady. So, uh, yeah, it's been another tough month for movie releases. Yeah, so, are uh, we going to see 80 for Brady? Uh, I have no desire to see that. It's it looks dumb, fun. and I do not like Tom Brady. So Yeah, I don't think anyone's talking about it anyway, so I don't think the world's going to be that upset. No, but um, let's talk about Interstellar. So I texted Wyatt and said, hey, we're going to do this episode without you, but I don't want to make you feel bad by doing a movie that you're excited about. So what are your least favorite genres of movies? And he said, sci-fi. And I like sci-fi. I don't know how you feel about sci-fi movies, Brett. It's uh, not one that's way up there on what I enjoy. Like, I, we're here because we love movies. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's no one genre that I'm going to say, like, oh, I never want to watch. But uh, it's not the first thing that pops like into my mind. Like some people on our podcast, Wyatt. Shall not be named. Oh, okay, never mind. It's Wyatt. He's dead. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, forget him. I enjoy sci-fi as much as the next guy. It's uh, not something that really makes me feel crazy excited to talk about movies but i've been wanting to watch interstellar for a long time because it's one of those films that uh, i feel like as a new age film guy i should have already had under my belt at this point it's certainly in that like contemporary canon certainly yeah very long overdue for brett but yeah i was i threw out a poll thank you to everyone who voted on our instagram page we got more votes than i expected we got quite a few yeah um hopefully all of those people listen and hopefully the people that voted against this movie do not hate us forever for not picking their movie maybe yeah. we'll come around to it the next time why it dies and we're recording an episode without him plug lasso the moon pod on instagram because i feel very confident we're going to be doing more polls in the future it was very nice to see a very clear-cut decision on what we should be watching because it was very obvious that interstellar was above and beyond the rest mm-hmm. what people wanted to hear about so yeah and that kind of speaks to sort of where we're slowly taking this i've been taking a lot of feedback from a lot of you dedicated listeners to heart absorbing that and trying to translate that into what i want this show to become at the end of the day i still want it to be my vision and accomplish the goals that the three of us have for the show but i also want to make sure that we're getting the best product possible that our listeners are happy with one of those bits of feedback was, hey, you should talk about movies people have actually seen. And so this is sort of the first step into that realm. To some extent, we still want to be encouraging people to see movies that are in theaters. And if us releasing an episode on a movie that maybe you haven't heard of that just came out encourages even a handful of people to go see this movie that they may not have otherwise seen, I would call that a win. At least for the goals of this podcast. I had a conversation with a fellow the other day who I do not know very well. So he didn't know that I was a movie fan. And I didn't know that he wasn't that much of a movie fan. But we got talking about movies. And uh, 
he told me that he hasn't been in a movie theater for like three years. <laughs> he did. Yeah. He did not know. He was like, where can you watch a movie around here? <laughs> we live in like a major city where, <laughs> where you can pretty much watch a movie at a theater like anywhere. There are theaters in every neighborhood in yeah. the city. So um, it's it's a main focus of this podcast to get people in those seats. So in the future, we'll be, you know, certainly pursuing a mix of what we want to do what excites us as well as what's going to uh, excite a general listener. Because Wyatt mentioned this at one point in an episode a few days ago. It's it's really hard for us to work up the emotional energy to record an episode on a movie that none of us are passionate about. Mm-hmm. Knock at the Cabin was tough. I, I enjoyed Knock at the Cabin because M. Night Shyamalan is a cultural piece more mm-hmm. than anything. But so I, like I, I have no desire to ever release like a Megan episode again or anything like that. So that this this is hopefully a step in in a good direction for us. One other new thing that we're going to be incorporating. Thank you to those of you that gave this feedback as well. Hoping to incorporate some categories that will be sort of a mainstay through every movie that we talk about. They should, in theory, lead themselves to new ways to discuss the movie, but also they they sort of add culture to the show in a way that you, listener, know what to expect with each episode and can sort of play along. We're still sort of figuring out how the listener can join our conversation outside of just listening to it. So hopefully having some steady categories that are mainstays in every episode will give you an opportunity to follow along. We're workshopping some ideas. Uh, we're going to try out a few in this episode after the spoiler warning. So stick around for after the spoiler warning to find that. But I've said this like two times. Let's talk about this movie. Did you get any numbers on uh, box office sales? I don't know what it's at currently, but I know this was like the ninth highest grossing movie in 2014. Mm-hmm. It. I know it profited like forty-five million. I think it made like a hundred ninety million domestically, something like that. Yeah. Um. It wasn't like a a smash hit at the box office, but it certainly made its money, which is good to hear. And I think that might be a good place to start talking about this movie. Christopher Nolan is one of the few. He might honestly be the only director still working that can make really high budget action thriller style movies that a people actually see and b are actually good. Yeah. Nolan gets a lot of what's the right word? Christopher Nolan catches a lot of backlash and criticism for his crutch of spectacle mm-hmm. in his movies mm-hmm. and using that to using that to bypass what would be an essential need for writing. Yes. Um, I'm not particularly in that camp myself personally. I'm also not a Nolan expert, but I, I think that those talking points are a little bit overstated. Generally speaking from what I've heard about the discourse, I think I can see where people come from and I can certainly see where that argument applies in Interstellar, but chalk me up. Christopher Nolan fan. Uh, it, the Dark Knight is one of my favorite movies mm-hmm. of all time, and I know, I know, that's like a roll your eyes take. <laughs> it's it's own it, baby. It, it is clear to me. I, I will. That is a hill I will die on. Certainly, I'm Jesus. Like 
best superhero movie of all time, I think is like almost no question in my opinion. So fanboy, I'll, I'll be in that camp. Yeah. Like you were saying, he gets a lot of criticism for his writing, especially his writing of characters. I think the main reason why it feels like such an issue with him is because it's so consistent. I've seen all of Nolan's movies now, and he has a new one coming out this year that we're both very excited for. But like I was saying, the issue of character writing is pretty consistent across all of his movies. And so even if it's like not to an extreme extent in any given movie, it can often feel like, oh, it's just Nolan struggling with character writing again, which I think kind of leaves a bad taste in some people's mouth because it's like, here's this one thing that this guy, no matter what, cannot do. In my opinion, I think there's still so much else to appreciate about Nolan's movies. Tenant was a really good example of this. I feel like that was the most Christopher Nolan movie of all of his movies because it was just like the absolute peak of visual cinema storytelling. Like I was just in awe the entire time and the movie did not even have a main character with a name. Like the main character's name was the protagonist and Nolan takes no time to flesh out any of the characters in that movie because in his mind, that's just not what it's about. Tenet definitely hurt his reputation yes. in that realm, without a doubt. It, it was like he was already getting criticized for it, and then he was just like, I'm just going to lean into this. Like <laughs> This one's for me. Yeah. Tough break on a movie that not a lot of people loved. Yeah. It also came out right. like That was the first movie to come out in theaters at the peak of COVID. Like, yeah. That movie was kind of just set up for failure. I, I do ultimately think it's pretty decent especially if you can overlook some of the character flaws. But I would say, I, I, I'm curious to see if you agree with me, that is not an issue at all in Interstellar, which might be why I think it's... I would need to really think about this. I haven't evaluated my Nolan rankings in a while. This might be my favorite Nolan movie. I think it is probably the most concerned with character Nolan has ever been. Maybe to some extent, it's still flawed because this movie gets criticized for being really on the nose with its characters. But I think the heartbeat of this movie is the relationship between a father and his daughter and the love that they have for each other and their fight to get back to each other. And so there's still so much spectacle happening, but it has... I talked about this in the Ant-Man episode last week. It still has something core human, emotional, to ground itself towards. And I think it really makes the experience wonderful, in my, in my opinion. Yeah, I fully agree with that take, 100%. Interstellar is a cosmic soap opera, or there's a name for that, a, a space opera that has a really humbling grounds on Earth and interpersonal relationships, family dynamics, which I'm... A total sucker for yep. every single time. Yep. And I I would fight against any claims of depth being an issue with the characters. Even I I would part I would take issue with a claim saying that the relationships, the dynamics here are not fully fleshed out or on the nose. Because I think that there's a lot of subtext going on with the relationships, especially when you factor in the complex relationship of the father-in-law and the son, which I feel goes pretty 
pretty overlooked. They get less screen time, so I think yeah. people often don't even consider them when talking about the overall effect of this family dynamic, but they're certainly important. Yeah, I think there's a lot of plot there that is, is very important. Um, but I, I think it's intentional that it isn't the forefront of the, the narrative here, um, which, again, makes it more subtle and interesting to me, which is all of the things that we're trying to say. Hey, Christopher, Christopher Nolan really did a bang-up job here. Yeah. yeah. When I talk about the criticism of this being it's on the nose, I think that is especially in regards to, and I don't really think this is spoiling anything, the sort of overarching message of it was love all the time. It's all about love. It's always been about love. Love fixes everything. It's extremely cliche, that message. But I think, Brett, you're absolutely right. There's so much happening here outside of that message. It's like, yes, that is the, that's the umbrella. That's mm -hmm. the message of this entire movie. But there are so many other bits and pieces that you can pull out of that. And it's told in such a unique way that, yes, that message is really basic, but there's still so much, in my opinion, that you can get out of this. And I also feel it's necessary to say, if the message of it's all about love is bad, we need to delete this podcast off of Spotify. That is something that resonates very strongly with the two of us and Wyatt if he wasn't dead. Um <laughs> So like didn't stop him from getting eaten by those ants. Yeah, he should have he should have loved the ants more as much as he loves everyone else. But my point, even if it's a basic message, it's one that resonates. And so maybe that's distorting our opinion. Maybe if if you don't like love as a concept, maybe this doesn't click as hard for you. But for us, it certainly works just fine. I haven't seen your outline of what you want to go over here, but I'm assuming that we are going to talk about that love as a almost as its own character uh, in this movie i'm assuming we're going to talk about that more at length uh and Certainly. we we might disagree about it and the role that it played and how effective it was to the audience so um i've got uh, no idea what you're talking about but well, i'm excited to get into that yeah exactly i'm interested too a few things that i do want to talk about outside of this before we get into spoilers this score Jesus Christ, I think it's probably my favorite film score of all time. Hans Zimmer, baby. It is so, so good. Hans Zimmer is, if he's not the GOAT, he's certainly in GOAT contention. I think if it's not... And I think not, this is his best work. I think in, they do very different jobs in the work that they have done. I think that you have to go head-to-head... -head Hans Zimmy, uh, Phil Collins. Phil, you mean John Williams? Phil Collins is not a. Phil Collins is a rock singer. <laughs> Wait, who wrote Tarzan? Who wrote the the music for Tarzan? That would the Lion be King? Phil Collins. Phil Col yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't write the score for that. He wrote the songs. No, I know. That's why I'm saying that they did different work. But we're talking about uh, moving original music in movies. They're the goats. Uh, the the Tarzan. Soundtrack is certainly brilliant. I, I throw that one on quite quite often. Your point was dumb. <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna move on. <laughs> uh it's okay. I, I'm not it's not uh, a no, stance that I want to uh I, I understand you were joking. It was it was funny. I'm it, sorry. It's not I don't <laughs> it's not even one thousand percent a joke, even though you are 
<laughs> you are being very clear about this is wrong. It is not a, a stance that I will die on. <laughs> I understand. To your the point of your joke, though, I think the goat debate would, at least in contemporary score writing, would be between Hans Zimmer and John Williams. I think this Jog is... my memory. What is uh, John Williams? Star Wars, Harry Potter, uh, Jurassic Park. Yes, I did know that. Definitely. Okay. <laughs> the uh, literally <laughs> all of the, like, the scores that every single person knows. Yeah. <laughs> most of them are John Williams. Right. But yeah. Hans really leans into, like, synths and big, heavy, like, bass synths specifically. He's worked with Nolan quite a bit. But he also, like, has a lot of versatility. I mean, he did the Lion King score. Like, he's just a very talented person. But... This is a very Hans Zimmer score in terms of like he's doing a lot of the things that he's known for doing. But I, I wrote down in my notes, like, depending on the scene, I mean, for one, every song feels unique. I can tell each song apart. I can pick out the different like themes that he's using. But at the same time, they all feel like linear. They all feel like they're a part of the same cohesive thing but depending on the scene the the score can be used to show passage of time tension loneliness emotion like literally whatever the score needs to get across in that moment it's like you can literally throw on this score just on spotify and you can feel all of the same things that you're feeling just watching the movie like it holds up on its own so well and i'm very confident that this movie would just be fine without this score, but with the score, fine. yes, but with this score, it's, it's, it's turned up to 11. I definitely agree that it shoots this movie into another stratosphere. I think that fine might be a little bit underwhelming. I think with, That's a, fair. with a good, with a good score, I think you still have a great movie. Get smitten on that score. True. Yeah. <laughs> Let, drop some intergalactic bars on that score. So a little bit of uh, fun trivia of, about the score in Please. question is that it was nominated for an Oscar but did not win. Yes, it. W- wait, let me see if I remember this. I I do not have the answer for who did win. Oh, well, I'm gonna guess and then look it up. I think it lost to, um, that hotel movie. Um, Grand Budapest. Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm. Uh, a movie that I have not actually seen. No, me either. I believe it lost to that. Yeah. Yeah, I think the only Oscar that Interstellar actually won was for special effects, which is deserved. Best visual effects. Yes, yes, yes. Which is certainly deserved. Five nominations. Yeah. So why don't you read them real quick? Yeah, so it won for best visual effects. Uh, Then it was nominated for original score, production design, best sound mixing, and best sound editing. So three out of the five being sound related, which I think is totally expected yeah um it was amazing i'm surprised that it didn't win more i'd like to see who did win those categories and then also the visual nominations were also Mm -hmm. being represented here which if i had to guess where this deserved to be seen where it deserved to get its credit at the oscars this is about what i would expect yeah yeah i agree as we've established in past episodes the academy as much as we like them they don't always get stuff right. It, it's, it is pretty wild, especially in hindsight, 
not seeing this recognized as the best score yeah. of the year because I mean it's it's probably one of the best scores of all time at least in my estimation but um the only other category there that I really feel they might have missed something I I don't know if this is a hot take or not I was 15 when this movie came out and not super into movies at the time so I didn't read a lot of the critical reception but I, this is probably the best Matthew McConaughey performance I've seen. Mm. I don't know what he would have been competing against, at least in terms of the Oscar awards, but at least in terms of what I've seen, this this is, especially in terms of like what the Oscars are looking for in, in terms of like the depth of emotion and a, a wide variety of things that the actor is expected to do on screen, I, I feel like this is a little bit more up their alley than some other things that Matthew McConaughey has done. Uh, looking at his w- overall work as an actor, I think if there is going to be a conversation about his best work, it's definitely the best. If not the best, is going to be this. It's going to be the runner-up mm-hmm. um, because it's going to be a conversation between Interstellar and Dallas Buyers Club, yeah. uh, which he also is amazing in. Yes. And I... I do not think it would be unfair to say that he's that he gives a better performance in Dallas Buyers Club. Yeah, that's fair. The scene of Matthew McConaughey crying in this movie got very heavily memed, especially like a few years after the movie yeah. had come out, when it had some time to sit with people. When but he kills it. It's it's an incredible scene. And I don't want to go into too much detail without talking about spoilers, but yeah, that, that scene is brilliant. I literally like probably a month ago was like kind of just want to throw on interstellar just to watch Matthew McConaughey cry again. Cause that scene is so good for additional context on our uh, movie watching experience today. Last night we watched dazed and confused. So we had a Matthew McConaughey double feature going on, which was fantastic. We had a great time. We then uh, Colleen and I allowed ourselves to be sucked in. Colleen is Brett's partner. Uh, allowed ourselves to be sucked into Bryce's night owl tendencies <laughs> because we couldn't. He just, he just, he like a fucking gremlin took the remote and <laughs> just forced us to watch Tick Tick Boom. No, listen, listen. <laughs> I didn't force anyone. I tricked them. It was genius. So I wanted to watch Tick Tick Boom. It was already twelve forty-five in the morning. I was like, oh, but but we have to watch the first scene. Like that's, that's all I need. Let's just watch the first scene. And I, I knew the whole time, the second they see that first scene, they're going to be like, well, maybe, maybe, one more <laughs> scene. Maybe, maybe one more. Uh, and then we got about halfway through the movie off of that energy. And then I think it was just, we're too committed at this point to leave. So yeah, I, I told Colleen cause I wanted to leave it up to them. I was like, I will leave when you do. Um, I, cause I don't have work tomorrow. But they did. And I was like, I will stay committed to this. And um, yeah, we ended up staying through the whole thing. And it wrecked my day. I don't know <laughs> if you realize this. That, <laughs> I'm glad that we did it. It was a good time. Destroyed me. Yeah, I mean, I just slept till 1 p.m. So it worked out all right yeah. for me. But yeah, last, last, last thoughts about this movie. Do you have any, anything that you want to leave the audience with? Before uh, not for right now. Further? I'm ready to dig in. Cool. Yeah, the, my last like parting thoughts here. This movie is like, it gets some criticism for being really complex. A lot of Nolan stuff is, but I truly feel like if you have not seen this movie, you can kind of just like 
let the story wash over you and just enjoy what you're experiencing. Nolan creates these really, really visceral worlds. And especially with this story, like because it has that relationship at the center of it, it has like a heartbeat that you can latch on to. And if you just like sit back, enjoy the ride that he takes you on, feel the, the score in your bones. This movie is like one of the best movie going experiences you can have, especially like if you have a, a good sound and TV setup. But uh, yeah, hopefully that's enough to sell you on it. Check it out if you don't want to be spoiled for 2014's Interstellar. It is streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Check it out. Join our conversation. Otherwise, let's get into it. I uh, workshopped in my notes app some ideas about how I wanted to say that Wyatt died. So I... I took about 20 minutes. I wrote down eaten by ants uh, and then car bomb. (laughs) (laughs) And that was as far as I got. It took you 20 minutes for those two ideas. And then I landed on eaten by ants. (laughs) I think that's, that's the, it's a good one. I'm glad we have that. I can't wait for Wyatt to listen to this on his, on his plane ride back to Pittsburgh, just to find out that he's been dead this whole time. We should have done uh, what we did for women talking for this movie. Uh, in that we should have been like, we don't know what we're talking about. Just watch it. Because <laughs> that's, that's how I felt uh, by the end of it. I had such a like actual headache from just wrapping my mind around the concepts and trying to figure everything out. It was tough. Yeah, it's, it's certainly super heady. And I think that's probably a good starting point here. There's a lot of science in this movie. Wormholes and dimensions and space travel and black holes and relativity like there's so much going on here i don't know if you know this brett this movie is actually like really really well regarded in terms of like scientific depictions of not astrology um astronomy astronomy and space travel and what relativity is Nolan took a lot of care in his research and he spent a lot of time crafting the ideas that he was putting on display here. And it really pays off. Like, even if you're not able to grasp a lot of the concepts, he does a really good job of, like, even if it's just one sentence, he tells you, you're not going to understand this, but this is all you need to know. It's like with the, let me think of an example. Like, um, when they're first going up to the wormhole that's outside of Saturn that's going to jump them to the the other universe. It's a real thing, wormholes. They're really hard to grasp, but Nolan does a good job. He he puts a character in this movie in Matthew McConaughey's Cooper that doesn't know much about them. And so they have a character who's who knows a lot about wormholes that is just like it's like this and he he draws point A and point B on a map. And then a line between the two of them, and he's like, well, what a wormhole is doing is it's turning this three-dimensional space into a four-dimensional, and you just jump right through. Like, you're skipping this all of this line in the middle. And it's like, you don't really have to understand what's going on to be like, okay. So they're basically like jumping dimensions. This is what's allowing them to do that. And he does that quite a few times. It gets increasingly more complicated, especially once, once Cooper enters the black hole at the end of the movie. 
I do find it hard to believe they didn't explain this concept to him before they got off the current. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he's yes. in a spacesuit looking at the wormhole. He's like, "What's that? Yeah, what's going on um, there?" There, there were certainly a few instances of that where it's like, if you really think about it, you can tell that Nolan is explaining something more to the audience than yeah. than the characters. That was a bit of a nit- nitpick of mine. It, it doesn't feel so egregious that it's like super obvious and takes you out of the situation like it's certainly natural enough that unless you're like really looking for it i don't really think there's any reason to question it speaking about the science though i don't know if you knew this i just learned this as i was just doing a little bit of research for the movie there is a book by one kip thorne have you heard about this i have um on the science of interstellar and i don't know much about the book but it it essentially goes through all the scientific concepts that are spoken of in the movie and talks about the real life equivalents and how they're actually being represented. Mm-hmm. And I might buy that book. I'm, it's, I'm it's not really cool. I'm not a huge science head. Like I'm, I'm not, I'm not even that smart of a person, but I do want to know how uh, these concepts were handled in the movie. There was one moment where I was, <laughs> I was watching this movie and I was like, Holy shit, man. I love science. This is so cool. <laughs> You're probably more of a science um, guy than I am. Yeah. I, 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 especially like in terms of movies, like I love science fiction movies. I would say it's equal parts. My dad's a big sci-fi guy. And also I'm just a nerd. So I think that's probably a good segue to what will be one of our first categories that we're workshopping. We don't even have a good name for it, but it's uh Bryce is a nerd fun facts. Mm-hmm. We've already kind of jumped into that because Brett gave us a fun fact already. So depending on the movie, we could have any any number of fun facts that uh, the three of us might provide. But there was a fascinating bidding war around this movie between Warner Brothers and Paramount. They're normally rivals, but let me, let me just read this because it, it's, it's insane. Despite their traditional rivalry, Paramount agreed to give Warner Brothers its rights to co-finance the next film in the Friday the 13th horror franchise with a stake based in the series South Park. And this is, this is all around this movie. So Warner Brothers also agreed to let Paramount co-finance an indeterminate A-list property. In August 2013, Legendary Pictures, who produced this movie, finalized an agreement with Warner Brothers to finance approximately 25% of the film's production. Although it failed to renew its eight-year production partnership with Warner Brothers, Legendary reportedly agreed to forego the financing of Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice in exchange for its stake in Interstellar. So Interstellar was like this fought-over property that multiple groups were like, let me get a piece of that, let me get a piece of that. So much so that they were literally like pushing down other properties. Interstellar literally kicked Batman v Superman in the shins and was like, no, this is my movie. Which is shocking because the superhero movies, especially this is at the height of of Batman mm-hmm. uh, film, right around when this was made. I guess it's a little bit later because the uh, the real height of it was like um, around two thousand eight, two thousand nine. But you know, it's still like that is. It's shocking that Batman wasn't prioritized because that is like the guaranteed money. You, that is where you'd be hundred yeah. percent sure you're gonna make money on this really cool fun fact about this movie so the black hole that we see throughout this movie was actually like a computer generated image based on actual scientific data that 
a team of scientists came up with. And then that data, Nolan gave that to a whole team of computer animators and graphic designers. And they literally put that code, they wrote that into code and had that come out as what we see in this movie. And apparently the file was so huge that like it took hours and hours and hours to even produce this image that we're actually seeing on screen. That was really cool. But yeah, that's that's all I got. I didn't have a ton of time to, to research fun facts for this one, but uh, Brett, you already gave us a couple. So Ooh, actually. Do you have any more? I have Hit one. Me with them. I, I did not know we were doing this category, but I had one off the dome. So the corn in the cornfields in the first act of the movie that they're driving through multiple times it is a great effect, but it's a practical effect because all that corn is real. Wow. So Christopher Nolan as he hates using CGI as much as he, he tries to avoid it as much as he can. And that's why I like him circa flipping that big truck over in the dark night. I can't believe you didn't know about this because no, you're going to love this. I'm a big corn guy. He planted 500 acres of corn, spent a hundred thousand dollars of the movie's budget on it. Then turned a profit on that project oh. by selling the corn. Yes. When production was done. I did hear that, that like years ago. Thing yeah, you've that's ever insane. Heard? I love that for Chris. He's a corn farmer and a great movie maker. I I love that guy. Well, thank you. For he that. made the decision to plant the corn. <laughs> I don't know that he <laughs> no, was no, in no. his overalls. No, no, no. He's a farmer. Dirty. No, I, I like to think he was. He planted every crop by hand. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that concludes Bryce's fun fact corner. Thank you, Brett. You you carried much of the weight in that uh, that first section. You had a good fact as well. Um, so. But corn, that, that's a, a good segue to talk about the beginning of this movie. Uh, so Earth, dusty as shit. Big it's dust. dying. It's very reminiscent of the, the Dust Bowl. Was that the 1930s or the 1830s? It was the 1930s. Damn. I knew it was the 30s. I couldn't remember uh, if it was 18 or 19. Dunked on by dust, Bryce McCracken. Yeah, Earth is dying. It's sometime in the near maybe not so near future earth is running out of both food and oxygen it appears and there's dust everywhere these these scenes are interspersed with these almost like documentary-esque interviews of old people talking about this time in their lives where everyone was really struggling they pretty much only had corn to eat the world was just going to shit and initially i i sort of questioned why they were doing this like i guess to some extent it makes it feel a little bit more real the world that's being created here doing what exactly this is a a narrative story and they're interspersing the the story that the interviews yes they're interspersing this very direct like this movie's very focused around this family they're interspersing that with interviews with old people talking about this time we don't know any of these people i yeah. thought it was a little bit strange it, it felt tonally different and initially on my rewatch, I was like, I guess this sort of like it helps show like maybe this world is real, but the movie actually explains it pretty well and pretty creatively. I feel <laughs> at the end of the movie after Murph has uh, essentially become a very successful space traveler, she she turns her old childhood home into a museum where people are learning about, like, hey, this is how bad Earth used to be. And so I thought that was creative. Yeah, I thought it was a 
really interesting uh, just even just visual device it looked sick because it the uh the tapes that we're viewing as those interviews are very much like early 20th century americana looks very sick and i thought it was a really interesting way as you said to kind of provide a little bit of tangibility to this like i I feel like i could see how this is the world that could exist if you were watching those scenes and were like wow these interviews with old people look sick i bet you you loved the rest of the movie yeah definitely (laughs) (laughs) like wow this is amazing they they put old people on (laughs) on you're telling me that they're physical videotapes amazing but yeah the movie starts off we learn a lot about Sort of our core family here, Cooper, is the dad, played by Matthew McConaughey, uh, and then Murphy is his daughter. Uh, fun little Timothy Chalamet appearance. I believe yeah. this was the first movie I saw him in when when it came out. I, I was like... Did not hey, remember that, kid, that he was in this movie. That kid looks like Timothy Chalamet. And then would you imagine my surprise when I found out that kid was Certainly Timothy was Chalamet. Certainly was Timothy Chalamet. Love that guy. These early scenes establish sort of like where the world is at, where these characters are at within the world. I really liked... There's an early scene where they go to a parent-teacher conference that uh, Matthew McConaughey's character Cooper has to go through, and it establishes so much in like a really tight, entertaining scene. He doesn't love authority. His wife has passed. He loves outer space. We and, also learn that's when we're in a bit of a dystopia. Mm-hmm. And overall, he's really freaking smart. Like We get all of those pieces... And Matthew McConaughey is kind of just cooking in this scene. Like he's kind of just being a little bit arrogant, douchey Matthew McConaughey. It's very funny, this scene. And there's a a punchline right at the end where (laughs) Murph asks him, hey, how'd it go? And he was like, well, you got suspended, but uh, it was all right. But yeah, that scene was really fun. Uh, Now, question about this. This made zero sense to me that they reference MRI machines. Mm-hmm. In that scene, uh, because MRI machines were a uh, product of our development towards space travel, mm-hmm. which, like a lot of things, I'm wearing a Velcro brace right now. Pretty sure that Velcro was uh, a product of space travel, as was like zippers. So, like, you know, hey, maybe we should do a little bit more of that space travel stuff. But they said we don't, ha- they're like, oh, back when we had MRI machines, where'd they go? It certainly does not explain it. I think it's implied just the world's like infrastructure is kind of shutting down. Like everyone is just farming now because you have to. Yeah. In order to keep up with the world's shrinking resources. So it's, I guess, maybe they just don't have the resources anymore for them. But yeah, yeah I don't know. It, it sh- clearly still shows like we still have a lot of technology like laying around. They, literally five minutes before that they capture an old indian like spy drone, drone. Yeah. so it's like <laughs> this tech is still here yeah that, that was a little bit strange if we're talking nitpicks that's uh that's definitely one of them for me along with that's also i think when they mentioned that there's like no armies to fight wars anymore it's like hey wait a minute this doesn't feel that dystopian to me this feels like a a, a better situation than maybe we're even in right now you're telling me that everyone stopped fighting i refuse to believe that the united states of america 
would give up the chance to be the most large, powerful military yes. on the planet, <laughs> no matter how dystopian this is. They're like, yeah, is. we just put down our guns and we all just uh, held hands and started working together. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it doesn't take the time to explain a lot of that, probably. Bec- I, I would not even be surprised to know a lot of that is explained, but was cut out because the movie's already two hours and 40 minutes long. Who knows? I don't know how necessary it is to understand that as long as the audience gets like, okay, the world's kind of going to shit. They're running out of food. They're running out of oxygen. They need to do something. Like, it's clear whatever they're doing is not working. Those scenes establishing all of that and sort of like the stakes for the movie, which are the world is going to die, are interspersed with these bits and pieces. So Murph, in literally like the first scene that we meet her, uh, Matthew McConaughey is having a nightmare and she comes in and she's like, I thought you were my ghost or I thought you were the ghost, which is very funny because on first watch, Brett, you can speak to this because it was your first watch. You probably didn't even think anything of that. No, I did not know what this ghost business was all about. Yes. And even even then, like it, it sort of explains like, oh, she's got like a ghost in her room. Her sh- shit keeps falling off the shelves. But like. The way that it establishes that and then you sort of figure out what's going on with this ghost, I think is really, really creative and well done. Yeah, certainly. Um, it is a really good misdirect. I knew enough about this movie to put the pieces together mm-hmm. pretty early. That's fair. And I was uh, in my assumptions about what the ghost situation may be as well as like they often reference... Uh, vaguely like extraterrestrials that are kind of pointing the humans in uh, Mm -hmm. the correct direction um so the ghost and then the extraterrestrials they are two big question marks referenced in the movie i pretty much knew what was going on but it was i feel like it was probably because of what i already understood about the movie going in i really wish it's one of my big problems with uh spoilers being given out like i've heard spoilers about this movie Mm -hmm probably years ago at this point, which messed up my viewing experience now. I wish I would have been able to be completely fresh Mm -hmm. watching this for the first time and actually get like, you know, I doubt that I would have been able to foresee all of this stuff if I didn't have bits and pieces. I I mean, granted, I was 15, but I certainly didn't see it all coming when it (laughs) happened. I'm sure most people didn't. I I haven't heard like, oh, this was obvious the Mm -hmm. whole time from anybody, so... I'm sure it was effective. You mentioned some extraterrestrials, and I want to get into that a little bit more in our our final category that we'll get to later. But I do want to mention they have they they basically refer to them as they or them throughout the story, uh, and that's not a non-binary person. <laughs> it is this sort of being or beings that both the audience and the character don't know who they are but it's clear they are orchestrating a lot and so we we get sort of bits and pieces of of this character manipulating the world or or i guess characters and like with the ghost bit this almost works as like a mystery it's it's not a true mystery in that like they're they're really trying to solve these bits and pieces but there are so many questions that it leaves both the audience and the character with like who is who are who's this ghost who is the they that is orchestrating everything that's happening here it leaves a lot open for interpretation and open for discovery that 
the characters are trying to figure out. And so we as the audience are like desperate to go along with them on this journey to figure out with them what's going on. So I think that that's really cool. But the ghost is telling Murphy messages, knocking stuff off, uh, off of her shelves. And eventually there's a big dust storm and they learn this ghost is actually gravity that's working in a certain way and through like essentially like slats like it controls where the dust falls it looks really cool the way that the light is like shining through the window and hitting the dust on the floor apparently it's coordinates i believe it's through binary right yes yeah so it's it's through binary and ones and zeros baby ones and zeros they they're able to realize that these are coordinates murphy and cooper go to these coordinates and find essentially a, a, a hidden NASA base that they've had to keep hidden because everyone in the world is like, we're starving. Why are you giving our tax dollars towards space when we're dying here on Earth? But this is an argument that I've had about space travel for a while. And Brett, you alluded to it earlier. Uh, this is also a side tangent. I'm sorry, but uh, space travel gives us a lot of knowledge and information and essential things that we have here on Earth. And without that budget, without that research, without that exploration, we wouldn't have a lot of what we have today here on Earth. And it's even more essential in this universe because it's not just finding new technologies and new information about the world. It's literally for the continuation of the human species that they're doing this, but they have to keep it hidden. They find this base. Meet Michael Caine. Who's in a lot of Nolan movies? I really don't know many movies that Michael Caine is in that are not Christopher Nolan movies, uh, but he's a good time. He and his daughter are professors. His daughter is played by Anne Hathaway, and yeah, we we sort of learn in this scene like what NASA's up to. They're trying to get to space. Yeah, I don't know if you heard. Space is pretty important uh, in this movie. Yeah, NASA is like crazy. This is going to be almost maybe a hot take, but. Depends on where you fall on the political spectrum. NASA is like underfunded. Yes. We do not give them as much money as they should have. And it's the tiny, per- like teensy, teensy, tiny percentage of what the government spends money on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, Especially considering like the military is like God, 65% yes. <laughs> of it. So it's, it's fascinating in retrospect to see this a couple years later where I, I don't know the statistics. I don't know the specifics of you know, this pretty niche part of American politics. But it's interesting to see now compared to back then. I feel like uh in twenty fourteen and uh earlier on than that, it was it was seen as much more exciting exploring space and seemed a lot more possible that we'd still be doing it. In the year of our Lord twenty twenty three, I don't think anybody is thinking about space travel even a little bit like there's the space force, but it's no, like I, more I, of a joke. I completely than not. disagree. <laughs> like, I mean, SpaceX was in its infancy in 2014. SpaceX is a very real company now that in the near future will be offering publicly available trips into space. Like yeah. in a few years, we will not need to be astronauts to go into space. And that concept is so fascinating to me. Like at some point, like him or not, Elon Musk, what he said about his company is everything he is doing is for the good of humanity. You can disagree with that. I probably do. 
but in terms of like Tesla, it's improving our consumption of goods on Earth. SpaceX is all about, well, what if we can't fix Earth? Which is sort of what this movie talks about. It's like eventually we're going to have to go out and explore the, as Star Trek would put it, the final frontier and colonize the universe, the galaxy. So like I, I, I still think it's something that is at the forefront of the culture, at least to some extent. Where I fall on it, where I fall on it with the SpaceX thing is that, like, in the relative grand scheme of space, it's uh, especially you know relative compared to our past, it is so underwhelming because it's so commercialized. Mm, that's fair. Where the uh, where the vision seems to be like it's it's the Jeff Bezos. It's thing just money going now. up in his penis yeah. rocket, right? <laughs> it's just about the money, and like I I. I think that Elon Musk is a lot of talk. We're not really going to see his company produce the kinds of things that he thinks that they are. And then also with, (laughs) with Tesla, we're finding out that like the ability to ethically consume goods is actually getting worse. Like uh, all of the, um, all the environmental aspects of Tesla turned out to not be as good and safe as they said it was going to be. So that's obviously like a a huge tangent, but I was about to say, I I have a lot of thoughts on, on this, but (laughs) It's not not necessarily relevant here, but we were just talking about the brands, uh, Michael Caine and Anne Hathaway. Yeah, so the, Michael Caine is explaining to Cooper, who it turns out they know each other. Cooper, I guess, used to fly for NASA. He used to be a pilot himself. Uh, Very so, highly regarded yes, pilot. But then he had a crash, and so he's no longer a pilot, ended up becoming a farmer. At one point... Michael Caine says to to Cooper, I can't tell you anymore until you agree to pilot this flight. And in the moment, I was like, what the hell? Like, you couldn't predict that he was just going to show up. Like, why are we pretending like he was a part of our plans this whole time? And for a little, like, a significant portion of my watching experience, it was a real issue that I had with the movie where it was just like, they're pretending like he was always a part of this plan, but he kind of just shows up. I have a take on that now. I, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about it. Oh yeah, well, I mean, it, it wasn't particularly off putting. It wasn't particularly off putting to me at the time, but it is explained. Like, there's uh, a definite reason why that uh, interaction goes the way that it it does. Uh, we found out more about it later on in the movie. Overall, this ties into a, a, a something that I noticed throughout the whole movie. There's a lot of like faith that these scientists have. And that's not necessarily like a religious faith, but it's sort of like a faith in the unknown, which is sort of at the core of what science is. Like in order to have any type of scientific discovery, you have to trust what you don't know. And it's really at an extreme in this movie. Like, all of these characters are very skeptical. You see that with Cooper and the ghost very early on. But at some point, it's like when you get desperate, when the world is literally dying and we have no other choice, or when the evidence is so in front of you, like with the the coordinates in the, the room, in the dust, it's like at some point you just have to be like, F it, I'm just going to go with this. And with the scientists at NASA and specifically Michael Caine's character, there's no good reason why 
Cooper should have shown up here. But that's sort of why they just go with it. Like, it's literally impossible that he could have gotten here. It's clear that there's something going on here. And so these normally very skeptical people just, like, lean into it. They're just like, okay, whoever is coordinating this, whoever's orchestrating this, we have to just trust them because it's, like, outside of the realm of just, like, sheer probability that this is happening. Like, something is happening here and they just lean into it and i think that that's a really cool twist on like what science is and what skepticism is and what these characters would be yeah cooper says it just a little bit before that you know i will tell you what's going on if you agree to pilot the ship conversation he's like you didn't even know i was alive yeah. 20 minutes ago yep. <laughs> no i'm really in the thick of this we given the high stakes situation that humanity is in Cooper and a small team of astronauts end up going into space to do very dangerous space travel because they are doing very experimental forms of space travel that, you know, they're like, yeah, we don't really know what's going to happen whenever you do this. The only people that have done it before did not come back. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it certainly is a compelling message about you know what we'll do when we are desperate and it says yes i think that's that's exactly the right point it's like this is sort of exploring what what might actually happen in this scenario and they comment on you know these uh these astronauts are the bravest people among us which is a very real real life thing that we've experienced with, like with the apollo missions i mean it's amazing to think that that was even attempted yeah. in the first place yeah. blows my mind yeah, so like Brett was saying, it, they, they go off into space, and their mission, of course, is to find an inhabitable planet. They have an A mission and a B mission. The A mission is to find somewhere that they can inhabit right now and to start sending people from Earth to this planet because Earth is getting worse and worse by the day and by the year. And then B is send some, some fetuses and maybe a couple people to start a, a colony to keep the human race alive but no one that is a current part of the human race would live on and it's clear that really the only people that understand what are what's truly going on here is Michael Caine's character he he tricks everyone involved into thinking that there's even a chance for the people on earth still um, Michael Caine is of the opinion that there's not. The world is screwed. This is too ambitious to pull off this plan A. Well, very specifically, they're looking for the answer to this theory that he has about the ability to manipulate gravity. Mm -hmm. And that's, that is sort of the key to garnering the resources required to get people off of, off of Earth and somewhere safer. But it's revealed later in the, on in the movie that hey, plan B was actually plan A the entire yeah. time because it's impossible for this to happen. The key is, uh, you know, information that we won't know until we've explored black holes, like physically sent somebody in there. and Which is impossible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, we find out that it's not as impossible as you might think, at least in the world of this universe. Characters die off. They explore a couple of the planets and find these aren't inhabitable. They They reach this this third planet, or I guess second planet. So they go to the first planet, there's nothing there. The scientist that went there is dead. They go to the second planet, and there's this really good 
scene where they fight over whether they should go to the second or the third planet because they only have a limited amount of fuel in order to get to the planet and back to Earth. The one planet supposedly has better data, but they've stopped receiving signals. And then the planet then that they end up going to, there's an active signal implying that the scientist that they sent is still alive, even if the data's worse. So they go to that planet, they find Matt Damon there. Yeah. Uh, he lies to them and is like, this place is inhabitable. Let's get the heck out of here and go, go save the world. We find out, of course, that he was also lying for selfish reasons. It's like a really good exploration of what someone would do if they're alone for as long as poor Matt Damon was alone there. Like, I, I don't think he's like an evil person. No. He was just a cowardly person and was driven to an extreme decision that nobody should ever have to make. Um, and to be clear, the decision in question is yes, sorry. He, he sent a signal back to Earth saying that this planet is inhabitable or we have reason to believe that it's inhabitable. So he, he essentially gets a rescue team sent for him. Yes. If he would not have done that, then he would have been there for the rest of his life stuck. Because he's one person. Why should the entirety of humanity care about this one person that's stranded? But now, eight billion people, because they only had the resources to get to him. Essentially, he has destroyed all hopes of humanity uh, being able to pull through this. Yeah, it's it's a a really cool concept that that Nolan's working with there. But he actually escapes with one of their ships, and I, this takes me to one of our new categories. Name in progress. This category is called This Scene Might Kill Me, which is just, I like this scene or I hate this scene so much that I might die. Uh, I could watch it over and over again, at least in this instance. This is the scene where after Matt Damon has escaped, he tries to manually dock onto the like the mothership. Yeah, it's called Endurance, uh, I believe. Yes, uh, Endurance is the mothership. He blows up one of the the docking stations and sends endurance into like this spiral it's hurtling towards the the face of the planet that they're at and Matthew McConaughey it's literally just Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway left and the second that this explodes you see this look of realization in Matthew McConaughey's face where he's like that is our only hope of ever getting back to see our families again like there's no way this little tiny ship that they're in has the the stamina to make it all the way back to earth. So he's like I'm going to go dock on this thing that's spiraling out of control and Anne Hathaway's like that's not possible. Yeah, they made it very clear that it is very difficult to do this docking maneuver even in ideal circumstances. But it's clear Cooper is like I there we have no other choice. Like either I try this or we're dead anyways. And this is my favorite scene in the movie. It's not close, even though I love a lot of scenes in this movie. I wrote down in my notes that in this scene, the score is scoring. It's going so hard. It's like the sort of like quintessential score for the movie is in this scene. And it's this is the hardest that it goes throughout the whole movie. The stakes are so high because, like I said, if, if they can't pull this impossible thing off, everything's been for naught. They're dead anyways. and like. It's also shot so beautifully, like the the ship, the endurance is spiraling out of control, and so in order to manually lock onto the docking system, 
they have to also spiral out of control. They have the computers match the rotations per minute that the mothership is at, and they have to do it too. So it's already hard enough to manually dock, but they're also doing it while spinning it, I think, 56 RPMs or something like that. Yeah, like 68. Yeah, it was, it was some crazy number. And this, they use, like, Nolan's ability to make, like, motion and specifically, like, intense violent motion beautiful is unmatched, in my opinion. Like, depending on where he puts his camera in this scene, either you're in space watching these ships spiraling out of control, and so you have this, like, chaos with the backdrop of just this gorgeous planet in the background, or the camera is stationed inside the vehicle with the characters. And because they're spinning at the same speed, everything inside is still. But then you get these like like super chaotic stars in the background that sort of like just remind you, oh, they're actually like moving so quickly. And it's cool how it jumps back and forth, like where Nolan is putting his camera in the scene. The stakes are so high. I love it. It's so cool. Yeah, I was waiting for the moment when we saw that their ship and Endurance were spinning at the same amount of rotation. So relatively speaking, they look like they're still. They're still, yeah. And everything else is moving in the background. Oh, my God. It's so fucking yeah. sick. Yeah, and the score is like it's just going crazy. Uh, Don't see it as something that could ever actually happen. But, no, but God. certainly not. Matthew McConaughey's a really good pilot. Yeah. So I'm willing to believe that he could have done it. Brett, did you have a, a scene that really stood out to you that you were like, this is this is it for me? Mm. We can only have optionally, we can just have one for this category. Yeah, I wasn't you don't prepared have one. for this. We got That's fair. One. But yeah, that leads us to sort of the, the end of the movie, frankly, where we can everything... we can we go back to something? Yeah. Because I, I I one point that I thought was really important was prior to them going to Matt Damon's planet. So they have just come from this uh, water world where in, for lack of better terms, they get their shit wrecked. They lose one of their crew, ne- crew members and they have been stuck on the planet for not very long, but the equivalent of 23 years on earth. So they get back to their mothership and um, they get with their crewmate who's been waiting for them for all of those years. And they start getting these, video messages um specifically cooper gets video messages from his family that are being transmitted to space over the course of all of that time it's a heart-wrenching brutally intense emotionally scene that was like you mentioned earlier matthew mcconaughey's acting shined through immaculately in this scene if there is a, if there is a scene for me that I would say is it like really sticks with me and is the best, it's probably that scene mm-hmm. because of the masterclass of acting. And um, I didn't love the editing in this movie, but the editing along with the acting, with the plot and the the score, instill very emotional response in me. It was perfectly executed and really makes you feel it. I I didn't cry at any point, but. That one got I me certainly close. did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a really, really cool acting decision that Matthew McConaughey is making in this scene where the super intense cry that is sort of memed now is actually right at the beginning of this scene. I, th- I think a lot of people, if they're just looking at the screenplay for this scene and trying to figure out like where the emotional beats are coming, 
you would think on paper it's likely like ramping up to this like super emotional moment likely like when a character saying something that hits hard but the thing that affects cooper so much and like gets that super super intense emotional reaction out of him is just the first time he sees how much he's missed like it's just so overwhelming to him all at once that he just can't control it there's this outpouring of intense sadness and then the rest of the scene he's still crying he's still sad but there's a level of like it, it's almost more like internal sadness that you can see on his face like it's not quite as visceral it's not coming out as like sobbing in the way that it did at the start of the scene but the more he sees that he's missed out on the more he sees that he's affected the people negatively in his life that he cares about the like more repressed that emotion in him becomes like the more internal internally sad he looks it, it's an incredible scene i yeah. think you're absolutely right the other scene that takes place immediately following that scene is the scene where they are communally deciding where they're going to go next they only have the resources for visiting one more planet mm-hmm. so which one is it going to be that is where the conversation delivered by anne hathaway's character starts getting pointed towards love is this ultimate interdimensional quantifiable source Mm -hmm. something that can be measured and has like ultimate control over it's essentially like the star wars version of the The force it's the force it's it's like that's actually what's been leading us this this whole way yeah i then that we should follow love to decide where we're gonna go next um it it is hard for me to do that conversation justice you'd really need to watch the scene to fully understand the scope of what I'm saying here. My takeaway from it is that it was pretty ridiculous and it was out of place. It's something that a lot of people have as a problem, a nitpick with the movie that it doesn't really make that much sense. It's being, it's a sentiment being delivered by Anne Hathaway's character who is a genius scientist, genius scientist and bases her life on science. Yeah. In every sense of the word, she bases her life in science up until this moment when she has this like love affair with uh, a a doctor that she wants to go visit on the one planet yeah. like it, it whatever makes... whatever astronaut was sent to that specific planet is supposedly a love interest of hers someone that she's loved and cared about for 10 years and so she feels this like indescribable call to her from this planet that even though this signal is no longer active like it is on Matt Damon's planet she thinks that this is the best option for them because love. Um, it makes a lot of sense that somebody could feel this way. It yes. doesn't make a lot of sense that she would feel yes, this way. That's and the main also, I, I think like as much as I am a sucker for love being the answer to things, I think is the wrong decision for this movie. I don't know if I would go so far as to say it's the wrong decision for the movie, but for this scene specifically, it it's, it's a little bit tough because it is like this character going through this specific thing, like this specific conflict internally. And I guess you could probably make the argument that like scientists or not, everyone feels love, but like also you're on a mission to save the entire planet. Evidence would suggest this person's dead anyways, because the transcription stopped 10 years ago. <laughs> so yeah. It's like at some point you expect this character to, 
make the logical decision. There was one thing that I really liked about this scene. And I can't remember what it is now. It's a line that she gives. I remember you were like, hmm, whenever she says it. <laughs> so uh, hmm. I told him. Yes. Mm -hmm. He had a monocle and tea in his lap. He was sipping away. Oh, oh, oh. It was at one point she says, how, to some extent, how do you, like, love, of course, has tangible evolutionary explanations. Like, love encourages societies to grow. It encourages humans to repopulate. But then why do we love people after they're dead? Like, that serves no evolutionary function. And so that is sort of her explanation for, like, there, there has to be some greater meaning here. And while, yes, I would agree there is, I don't know if it's, like, a, a metric that could actually influence the way that the world works in the way that this movie kind of tries to say it is. So yeah, I think that's a really good call, Brett, that <laughs> this, this scene's a little bit strange. It's still, like, written pretty well, especially for, like, a, a discussion in a Nolan movie. There is that line that I really like, but there, there's certainly some level of, like, you kind of just have to turn your brain off and be like, yeah, of course love is the answer to, to like, actually sit through this this section of the movie. One last thing that I want to talk about before we get to the third act is uh, Dr. Romilly, the uh, other astronaut that's been on this expedition, is an MVP. He's, like, a great part of this movie. I don't know the actor. Um, I see that he was in... Uh, the Dark Knight Rises. Yes. But I, yes. I've, it's been so long since I've even seen that. I don't know what he did. Yeah. He was awesome. I loved his character. Yeah. His role is clear. Like, he's kind of just there to explain stuff. But he's entertaining. So I, I'm kind of okay with it. We like, had to you talk, do need that role. We had to talk about him before the third act because he gets murked before <laughs> I get there, unfortunately. Yes. He gets exploded. Uh, this is sort of a good segue to, or at least the discussion around that scene is sort of a good segue into... Uh, this, this category is more for Wyatt, but he's not here, so we're going to do it for him. This is the Wyatt's a pretentious asshole nitpick section or category. Name pending. Name pending. There was one real nitpick that I had with that scene that we were just discussing with Anne Hathaway. How does it explain how Cooper knows that she's in love with this dead guy? Oh. Because at one point, she's like, I think we should go here. And then Cooper's like, are you going to tell him the real reason? And he's like, there's a pause. And then he's like, she loves him. And then I'm like, wait, hold on. How do you know that? Yeah. She didn't tell you that. Are you just like reading her that well? I think that it, it would be hard for us to go back and fact check this to make sure. I think that you might have the details flipped about which, which astronaut is still sending a signal from their, their planet. I think that the planet that has the doctor that she's in love with i think he is still sending signals no because matt damon's been in the cryo sleep for years so he's no, not sending signals he anymore. set it up to keep sending them that was sort of like it, he addressed that because he's like i i turned this on right before i hit the sleep button for mm -hmm. the last time i must uh, have missed that part regardless i did not know that she was in love with this guy and i didn't know how cooper knew that <laughs> She yes. was in love with this guy. I assumed that the movie had said it, and I missed it. And you missed just missed it? it. I don't yeah, think I you did. comforted to know that you also missed it. Yeah, I think, I think I'm just supposed to believe that Cooper read her character that well and yeah. was like, 
of course she she must love this guy because it's not logical to go to this planet. But yeah, that was that was a nitpick. Hopefully we're not stupid and it was explained <laughs> and we both just missed we're it. We're stupid, but probably isn't why we missed it. Yeah. Any nitpicks for us, Brett? Um that we didn't already get to naturally. I've got one for you. You pointed it out, you noticed it before me. What the heck's with the changing aspect ratios? Oh god, I forgot to put that in my notes. Yeah. Dude, it is jarring how many aspect ratio changes are in this movie. I don't know what the practical reason for that was or not practical, but like why was why why did it happen? Why did we have to change from 69 to uh I think what is it four three mm-hmm. like a million times over for like no discernible reason at any point. Had it been consistent, I think I would have liked it. Yes. Like, like if it was, we're in this period of time, so we're in this aspect ratio, or we're in space rather than Earth, so we're in this aspect ratio. I think I would be okay with that, but it just changes willy nilly throughout the whole movie. It kind of just feels like Nolan and was so like, many times. Yes, it kind of just feels like Nolan was like, yeah, this looks better with this aspect ratio. And like I said, you noticed that before me, and I was like, oh, is it really? And then there was like a really specifically jarring aspect ratio cut. I believe it's like when the dust storm first rolls in, yeah. and they're like running through the dust, and it, it's full screen, essentially, and then they get inside, and all of a sudden, it's like this tiny little strip. I was like, what the hell? Like, yeah, what's going on here? Um, I love a good aspect ratio change in a movie. Usually when it happens, it is it is kind of exaggerated. Like you even will see the bars start to fill in on mm-hmm. the screen and it means something. Yes. Whenever the aspect ratio changes in a movie, usually it means something and it seemed that it was meaningless in this, in this use for interstellar. Yeah, I completely agree. It, it felt quite pointless. I think my nitpick, my big nitpick in the story might technically have an explanation, but if it does, I'm not buying it. So, um, and we haven't gotten to this point in the discussion, but Cooper ends up flying through the gargantuan black hole that is presumably an answer to all of their problems. Um, he ejects inside of the black hole, which because it's unknown what actually, you know, happens in a black hole, I guess technically could actually happen. He could live through that. But then he enters what's called the Tesseract, and it is like this fifth dimensional realm where he is able to travel through time physically he falls down through like an infinite amount of stories and then happens to end up at the time and place where he needs to be to have an effect on the past to result in a future where humans survive I think that they imply that like humans build this Tesseract for him later on, but it's, I guess that like, that's why I mean, like, I guess it makes sense that they give an explanation about this. I don't buy it. (laughs) I don't buy it. This was my big like discussion around like, what is the point of this movie? So ultimately this is the explanation of who is they who is this like ambiguous being or beings that are orchestrating everything that's going on in this movie. So when they, when they get to this Cooper, I believe says like, it's us, like we're doing this. And there's a lot of layers to that. I guess two layers to that because 
to some extent, it has been us. It was him that whole time orchestrating all of these things. It's Cooper that is knocking the books off the shelves. He is the ghost. That's like the big reveal. It's Cooper who causes the gravitational anomaly that Anne Hathaway's character shakes hands with on the ship right before they enter the uh, the wormhole. But that asks the question, who is it that opened the wormhole? It's implied like somebody did that with intention. This wouldn't have just happened. It's implied that this tesseract that Cooper is in when he enters the black hole is a created thing, like someone did that for him. I heard a good analogy to explain like what a tesseract is. It's like uh, a tesseract is to a cube what a cube is to a square. It's like a square is 2D, cube is 3D, tesseract is like one more. So it's like this, they've created this space because Cooper would literally, and I guess the audience would not even be able to comprehend what another dimension of existence would be. So whoever is orchestrating this, created this space for him to have a a hand in what is going on in his own life in a way that he can try to understand it the the my main point here is i think it's implied that the the they is we that that's confusing when when he implies that the person orchestrating everything or the person's orchestrating it is us that means it's me I'm doing all of this, and you can see how I'm doing all of this. But also, it is us, the human race. And it's like this message of hope. It's like, of, of, we're going to get out of this. And we get some more of that hope later when, when he's rescued and is taken to a, a ship. It's like this message of hope. We're, we're not just going to get out of this, but humanity is going to evolve so much that we become able not just to travel through space, but to travel through time and manipulate dimensions that where we're at right now we can't even comprehend it's really crazy to think about or for nolan to be like yeah this is what's happening here but i i do think that that to answer your question is what he's trying to get at like that is the evolution of humanity that is orchestrating all of this that is what i assumed as well and i don't love it as uh an answer to these questions but i think the alternate I think the alternative is that love did it. And if that's the that's answer, even worse. <laughs> I'm going to be really pissed off. Yeah. Cause I didn't watch this space cowboy odyssey, you know, seeing Matthew McConaughey rip it up through time just for, you know, I love you to be the, no, <laughs> damn it. I'm sick of this. Get it out of my face. Yes. Yeah. You're, you're right. <laughs> so I hope that that's the answer, but it's not my favorite part of the movie anyway. And I, I think that leads us well to our, our final category. What the heck's the point? What, what the heck's the point? In which we'd like to explore. This is a category that I'm certainly passionate about. Name pending, of course. I, I like to try to figure out what's the filmmaker trying to tell me. And we've already sort of discussed the cliched. We've all already definitely discussed the cliched. Love is the answer bit. And I, I, I don't really want to revolve this part of the conversation around that anymore because we've discussed it already and it's on the nose and it's not super creative and we still kind of like it anyways to some extent. I, I want to talk more about what we mentioned just there with like 
this is sort of a story of hope for humanity to some extent. There, there, I, I have a question for you. For me? Yes, for, for you. For me? So early on, Cooper says to his father-in-law, we've forgotten who we are, explorers and pioneers, not caretakers. And what that line implies is at least Cooper, the character, does not believe Earth is salvageable anymore. It's time to go back to our our 1400s roots as humans and go out and explore and find new land and move on. But my question for you, because I don't think I have an answer, is, is that Nolan's take on the situation? Or is it just that character? Like, like, allow me to expand on that a little bit because I think I was probably confusing. Is Nolan saying Earth as it is right now is maybe not salvageable? We need to be considering leaving. Or is it just an exploration of if we reach this point, maybe this is what humanity might be driven to do? Yeah, I'm not sure what the answer is because I think that is something that only Nolan could say for sure how he feels about it. Um, I don't think that there are enough context clues to tell me for sure one way or the other, but I am sure that what he did have in mind was having some sort of realism about the, the possibility of what could happen on this earth in terms of cataclysmic environmental effects, which we are seeing right now certainly incredibly, incredibly real. And it's uh, certainly time to disregard any amount of dismissal uh, over these topics because like it's becoming more and more, more real uh, by the day, month and year, you know, um, all every single scientist has been saying it's very, <laughs> it's real for yeah 30 years now. And we're now starting to feel it. And unfortunately, I think humanity won't react to it until we start to feel it because that's just yeah. who humans are. So at some point, we got to have some answers. But um, yeah. we're <laughs> on top of the environmental issues, we also have an overpopulation issue. We got a lot of people to figure out what we're going to do with them if we we're going to go somewhere farming. else. I have never even thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> You're telling me we, we take a little seed and put this shit in the ground mm-hmm. and make food out of that? Make food. But we should just make corn. And give it all to Bryce. Big corn guy. Big corn guy. Mm. Creamed corn on the cob. Mm-hmm. Canned even. It all hits. You know what I, I hate corn. is those little tiny corns that are oh, like an inch I, long. Are those real corns? I think that they're called something else, but they're garbage. I hate them. I pretend that they're not if they are. I do not like to acknowledge their existence. It's like the, uh, they're like, those things are to corn what broccoli is to trees. <laughs> it's, it's not a tree, but you could convince someone that it was. Yeah, that's pretty real. But yeah, the, the point that we're making here, or I guess the point that Nolan is trying to make, I think he might just be trying to say, like, this is where we could be going. Mm-hmm. It's entirely possible that we might reach a point where leaving is the only option. Maybe this is what happens. and. Back to the story, it's cool that Murphy, his daughter, is sort of the one that like got them there. Yeah. It's clear that the entire world thinks that she's pretty neat. 
Uh, to be clear about where we're where we are in the story as well, in case anyone who listening to this has not watched the movie, which Good if idea. you made it to this point, God bless you. We You're wild. About, we've been talking about this for a while. Cooper has ended up out of the black hole, and he's been picked up by the you know remaining humans who are now they have gotten off of Earth in their own little colonies near Saturn because of the messages that he sent through the Tesseract back in time. So he sent messages to to his daughter, who she used them to fix that theory that we were talking about earlier, the answer to how to control gravity. They figured it out because of the information that he got from the black hole. Um, so now she's a hero, he's a hero, and they're uh, still traveling through space, but they finally have some way to, you know, keep humanity alive. And I, I, the reason why I believe that this ends on a hopeful note is, I mean, for one, why have they set themselves up in this area on this, whatever it is, this big ship, this colony, if they don't have some evidence that what they're doing is working? And two, or B, I can't remember what my, <laughs> my precursor was. Couldn't tell you. Um, I wish you listened to me. <laughs> <laughs> The like one of the last shots of the movie is Anne Hathaway's character and the voiceover of Murph as an old woman is talking about how like you I'm dying, but you still have something to fight for. Like you've got Anne Hathaway on this planet. Yeah, she's been stranded. She's there. been stranded there. We need to go get her. But I think it's implied Anne Hathaway takes off her mask in this scene, which is they didn't do on either of the other two planets mm-hmm. whenever they were outside, which I think bodes well for its likelihood of sustaining human life. Mm-hmm. They have to be following some signal or they wouldn't have invested all of this money and all of these people into getting out into space onto this colony. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's subtly implied that Anne Hathaway is sending them signals to be like, Hey, this is it. Yeah. Like this is the future. And this is the first effort to get people there. And that's like the, the last shot of the movie. It, it doesn't say anything super blatant, but I, I feel like it's, that is the hope for humanity that this movie was striving for and sort of the answer to that question, like what would we do if we messed up Earth so bad that we had no other option? Yeah, we don't actually know what has happened to Anne Hathaway before this final shot. All we know is that we left her while she was going towards this planet, but we don't know, you know, if it's inhabitable or not. The shot of her with her helmet off breathing in the atmosphere is an amazing uh, visual tool to be able to tell the audience, you know, that it's inhabitable. She might have done it. Yeah, it was a great reveal. Way to land the plane on this one. Way to land the plane. Well done, Brett. Let's land the plane on this podcast. We've been talking for a really long time. (laughs) If you've listened to this point, especially like Brett said, if you haven't seen this movie, you're crazy for that. Uh, but thank you very much for listening. We appreciate it very much. Sorry Wyatt wasn't here. I know uh, Wyatt's got a lot of fans. I'm sure you all miss his voice. He'll be back soon in next week's episode. Follow us on our socials at Last of the Moon Pod so that you can stay updated on when those episodes drop. Leave us five stars on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. That helps out a lot. We thank you very much for that. And share this podcast with some people. Send the podcast to your friends that you think might like it. That also helps out probably even more than the five-star reviews. So if you have somebody in your life that you think might enjoy listening to us boys talk about movies, please feel free to share. Uh, Wyatt, we changed the locks. 
your key is not going to work anymore. You're out of here, buddy. You're out of hit the road. You're also dead. You're dead. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure how a dead man would get into our house, but uh, that's uh, that's a terror that I don't want to explore in this moment. I'm just kidding, Wyatt. We miss you. We miss you, buddy. Come home <laughs> we'll soon. We'll see you soon. We miss you. Have fun watching baseball. Thank you very much for listening. It's late here, but we're going to go to bed. I'm, I'm going to eat dinner. I haven't gotten any of that yet. That too. We would last of the moon for you. We hope you would do the same for us. Good night. I love you. Love you.